which I know is horrible, but as I say, comedy is tragedy plus time. But all I can think of is that while he was <laughs> finishing off, he'd still be out of talk. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. And welcome to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark creativity, curiosity and imagination. John, it's as always, it's lovely to see you and we always like to kick off with what's caught your curious eye this week because curiosity is at the heart of being a great occupational philosopher. John. It is. Hello, Simon. Well, we've been yet again obsessed by Australian TV. So (laughs) my family and I have been watching Lego Masters Australia, and it just concluded with a big finale and uh, the grand reveal of who, after many, many weeks of fantastic Examples of creativity, curiosity, and and real flights of imagination. We have just been riveted by the whole thing. And clearly, it's a masterclass in creativity. You've got these teams growing each week, sort of starting off very tentatively, thinking, okay, we'll build this like this. And then over the weeks, they just start to say, well, what if we did that? Well, why can't we have a a 10-foot Lego cat hanging off a tree? (laughs) <laughs> that's 20 foot tall and you it just becomes crazier and crazier and more and more outlandish and sometimes it fails and then you realize lego is the ultimate experiment fail prototype tool that you can think of it is the best material in the world for that and then just a joy to see them wrestle with the questions of what if what if we did that how might we do this so yeah everything's there it's a microcosm of everything you'd wish to see in an organization (laughs) (laughs) that that catches it doesn't it i mean that that's it isn't it yeah i don't know we should all build lego two two things strike me here you watch a lot more australian tv than i do so i i I know the show (laughs) but i've never tuned into it it's the accents the kids love the accents (laughs) And the second thing which strikes me out of that is, and your point is spot on, you start off quite conservative, but what happens is when you build something, you're sending different messages to your brain by using your hands. Like when we sit and tap, tap, tap away at our Mm. computer each day, we're actually only accessing a very narrow part of our brain, which is called our executive attention network. And I think we've spoken about this before. When we do things with our hands, we start to then access our default mode network, which is where our imagination and our subconscious lives. So the very act of, let's say, prototyping is a creative thinking piece in itself. Because we often think in the world of design or design thinking or innovation, think first, then prototype. But actually, the prototype, it can almost work in reverse. So prototype, which drives the thinking. So what you're talking about, John, is a microcosm of what can happen in the innovation process. And I like it. Mm, that's it. And of course, well, let's get to the lessons later on. But there you go. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> sure. curious. A bit, bit deep and early, okay? <laughs> I was going to say, this was just meant to be the fun bit. I've been watching something about Lego. <laughs> we've blown, I love Lego. We've blown the, blown the challenge of the show. Go with something lighthearted and then do the serious stuff at the end. <laughs> Come on then, help me out. Help me out then, Simon. What's been catching your curious eye this week? And make it funny. Oh, I don't know. I think I'm going to go a bit deep as well. Like if you uh, tune into our little <laughs> Inbetweeners episode, 
maybe last week or the week before, I was in the nation's capital of Canberra doing some work and went to see one of Australia's very well-known artists called Jeffrey Smart. Uh, and I would say it's a retrospective of his life right through from his very early paintings through to his later works. And I was just fascinated because he drew, he painted really mundane things like freeways and things like tips, if not tips, or like rubbish piles or buildings or these, let's say not rubbish piles, but very industrial things. But the beauty he saw in these and the colour he saw in these things just fascinating and as, as a quote which I've got from uh, the exhibition and I love this thing very curious guy suddenly I will see something that seizes me a shape a combination of shapes a play of light or shadows and I send up a prayer because I know I've seen a picture so I just love how love it. how curious he was and Oh, and all of his artworks, and I'll put a link in the show notes, all these artworks had really incredibly dark skies looking like it was about to rain, but then the reflection of the, you'd find that shard of light coming through and bump off all of these objects. And I just love the fact that he saw things differently. And then he went and lived in Tuscany, and it was around the time of when Italy was putting in the big autostradas or something, the Italian version of that. So he was fascinated by these freeways, often with no one on them at the beginning, and how he saw beauty in them. And I thought, yeah, it was great. And it's funny, you think, in, you think what are these spots where my inspiration is at its highest? And I think for me, in an exhibition like that, I felt moved. Mm. So not fun, a little deep wow. maybe, but I was just, I couldn't, yeah, I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, this, what does he, how does he think like this? And, oh, so it was... <laughs> It was lovely. And it reminded me of a time I was in Florence and I saw Botticelli's Birth of Venus, the painting, having, yeah, and I cried. I looked at it and I cried. I started, <laughs> and I wasn't crying in the Jeffrey Smart <laughs> exhibition, but I, I, I remember thinking, oh, it's like, this is so beautiful. Right. <laughs> anyway, that's my what's caught my eye, just how other people uh, see the world. And then most importantly, bring that to life. They don't sit on it. They express that. And in what and we all mm. express things in different ways, but I love that he he told those stories. Well, that is going to lead into I think today's episode in terms of seeing things and bringing that to life and stories as well. Because today, Simon, we're gonna go back in time again. We're gonna take a look at the Greek heavyweights, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Or as I would like to call them, Socrates, <laughs> Plato, and Aristotle, because Aristotle know it all. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> it's hammy jokes, and some of them are lifted from something like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Socrates. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the names, the names, the names work. Well, that's very much if in Australia we struggle with any type of name which has a, a Latin or a, a Spanish or a, a different type of language. So we'll, we'll instead of saying, you know, Javier, Javier, or something like that, or instead of uh, Jose, oh, Josie, Josie. So, Josie. So, so, so we'll, we'll go with Socrates then to start with, yeah? Yeah, I love it. And I love, we, I, in a very, very, very early episode of the show, we did a sort of a long history line of the great philosophers. But one of our aims, and I like we're going to dive into a little bit more detail, one of our aims, our very first show, we said, imagine 
if in 15 to 20 years every workplace had an occupational philosopher. Now you could just go and ask questions and say, well, I've been thinking about something, and he'd be sitting there, you know, maybe in the lunchroom as we've spoken about or maybe even in his own open plan office, hot desking maybe even in the modern world, and you say, oh, <laughs> a wise one, uh, have a question, and they would be there. So this is a, a little step on that path, John. To start with Socrates, I wanted to, I thought, just pick apart some of his quotes, his ideas, and specifically move quickly to what can we practically apply in our workplaces, in the teams that we're part of, in the organisations that we uh, are within. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Just give some, what's the time frame for Socrates? When was was he hanging? I knew you were going to say. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of, he was hanging out. What is it? Late late fourth century BC, something like that. Okay, I, I do have the. It's, it's one of those things I go. Oh, I don't. You know, it's a long time ago. <laughs> so not recent. Not recent. It's We're not, not talking like fourteen, fifteen hundreds. Like he's not a Renaissance man. Oh God, no. Okay. No. So here we go. So it was actually four seventy to three ninety nine BC. Okay, you're spot so on. For those people, if that's the if you're into that sort of thing, he was around that time. So two and a half thousand years ago, and. He's known for kind of being, well, he's known for a few things. He's known as being a pain in the ass. <laughs> and the gadfly, which we touched on before in an earlier episode. So he was kind of sort of one of those people who walked around the streets of Athens. And he was said to have be drawing philosophy down from the heavens. And it was to make it something that people could engage with and not just be some internalized abstract thought conducted by people in togas with big long beards, but actually people in the street. So he was, I guess, normalizing curiosity, normalizing this type of thinking and bringing it from, I love that, uh, the elite, we only think a certain way. And you, the serfs, I'm not sure if I got the, you know, my language quite right there, yeah. but you, the common folk don't have this ability to think like we do. So he was, I might say, democratising big thinking. Interesting point. And side, <laughs> side note, Captain knows he hated the idea of democracy. Okay. Funny as <laughs> I said that. Which is really I interesting. Had a doubt, yeah. It's really interesting <laughs> as you said that because you're right. As a principle, bringing it to the masses, you might say that is democratising. But it's just interesting. It made you said that. I just thought, oh, uh, one of the things I do know in the few little things that I know about him was that he didn't think democracy worked. (laughs) I can't remember. There was different forms of government that he thought might work better, but democracy wasn't one of them. He didn't trust people (laughs) to make wise choices. Now, also, he's often referred to in with the same words as the gadfly, and he was so annoying. (laughs) This this is important to know. And look, if you listen to this in episode four, we'll repeat the story again. I think it's worth sharing. So he was so annoying. Like... (laughs) His questioning led to an untimely end, correct? Is that how we might say it? That is correct, yeah. So (laughs) they all um, sort of gathered together and said, look, you're disruptive and you're corrupting the youth. And they conducted a trial and he didn't really sort of endear himself to the the jurors because they used to have a, a massive set of jurors. I mean, they would have hundreds of people would listen to this and then yeah. they would come to judgment as a real massive collective of the sort of the the elite as it were but also the people but he he didn't bring anyone on his side because he just said 
You don't know what you're talking about. I'm brilliant. You don't realize what I've brought to Athens. And frankly, you should be paying me to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and they all said, right, that's it. We've had enough. And of course, he'd made a few enemies along the way. So <laughs> he was given an option, actually. He didn't have to. He didn't have to die, but he just said, no, I'll take the punishment as decreed. And that was death by drinking hemlock. And apparently there's different types of hemlock, but this particular one, you drink it and you slowly paralyze from the feet up, (laughs) which I know is horrible. But as I say, comedy is tragedy plus time. But all I could think of was that while he was (laughs) finishing off, he'd still be out of talk. So even up until the last minute, <laughs> till it got to his neck, maybe, he'd still be able to talk and sort of be really annoying. He was probably still asking questions right at the end. <laughs> How long will this last? Yeah. <laughs> ah, is that, why does is, why is my arm suddenly feel sort of stiff and paralysed? I can't move my, can't move my eyelids. Can, can um, someone scratch my nose, please? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... As I say, we could laugh at it now, but it must have been a horrible death. Now, was um, was he? He was yeah. corrupting the youth with his big questions. Would you say, or yeah, just just I think we, you know, we we always touch on this: the idea that obviously philosophers kind of perceive as as being disruptive and potentially being too radical. They can sort of disrupt society and sort of break down the natural law and order of things, as might be perceived by the elite that they wish to maintain some status quo. So a philosopher coming in was obviously potentially, yeah, would be someone who would make a lot of enemies. He would call people out on stuff. He would challenge what they thought was the way to run things and say, actually, no, there's another way, or why are you running it like this? So he um, gathered a lot of enemies along the way. So by the end of it, they were first in the line to try and make him drink from the goblet of hemlock. (laughs) (laughs) We're spending way too long on his death. Well, let's dig into it now we've explored his death in immense detail. <laughs> so he said three quotes first. Maybe you can see these as well. So but the first one, I think, is the unexamined life is not worth living. And, you know, that that's at the heart of everything, isn't it? it is that he's just saying, look, you need to question, inquire, be curious and go into these things and not accept things necessarily as they are, but really try to get to some level of wisdom and knowledge and understanding and truth. I really like this one is know thyself. And I think, or we always talk around how, what can we learn from this in a business context, but I think on a a personal and emotional level, like ask those big questions about yourself. And I think if you know those big questions about yourself outside of work, you also present at work in a better space as well. But as uh, oh, I'm going to go. I'm getting a bit philosophical here myself. But I think as you get older, John, maybe you ask more questions about yourself. And often we talk around wisdom. I don't think wisdom comes with age, but I think often you get the chance to reflect a little bit more. So you ask bigger questions. So that know thyself, I think, is a really nice thing to yeah to frame through. And John, I know you like his third quote, which is that we have here. I do. Probably, I think I said this before, you know, any spark of interest in philosophy, I am sure came from my father when he used to quote this and say, all I know is I know nothing. 
And it was only many years later I realized this was a fundamental quote of, of Socrates. Again, it's that we'll talk about the lessons in a minute, but there's a humility there and a recognition that everyone has limits to their understanding. And that is really useful as you think about how you come to work in teams and organizations is there are limits and there's always more that one could know or learn that would help you move forward as an individual, as a team, as a business. So yeah, this is it. This is applying ancient wisdom now for modern times. And going with that mindset of I'm here to learn and be open to building what I already do know is a really great mindset rather than this piece around, oh, you're the expert, you've got all the answers, because I think all the experts are always searching for new answers anyway. So, yeah, ancient wisdom for modern times. That could be another podcast, John, maybe we do in the future. This is then, I think, leads us into quickly some of the ideas that he played with. Of course, there's just tomes of stuff that we could talk to and Again, there is longevity in this podcast because we could be gone for decades. (laughs) Let's hope not. I mean, I like you, but I don't know if I could do a a podcast for 20 odd years with you. But the big idea is clearly one of the things he was always doing was trying to, it was almost in the realm of ethics. He was saying, look, what does a good life look like? How should we live? Was often the big question that he would be associated with. So how should we live? You know, what what does the good life look like? And so he saw, you know, moral good, the goodness of the soul, virtue as the answer to that question. But to get to that point, he started to share an approach which I think is relevant here, which is he would just get really clear on definitions. So he would go around and ask people and say, what do you mean by virtue? When you say virtue, what do you mean? And so he was known for this ability to really get clarity around definitions of words, of ideas, such as virtue courage, um, love. So I would say he could also be thought of as the modern day facilitator, John. So (laughs) he's that person. (laughs) He's going to ask those deeper questions. And look, we've spent a little bit of time in this space. So (laughs) he's like the, yeah, he's like, oh, we're going to ask some great questions. Yeah, you're probably right. He probably had a flip chart and some Sharpies (laughs) as well. Yeah, post-it note. Let's cluster those oh. thoughts <laughs> around God, virtue. Who would like to dot vote? <laughs> Jeez, what I couldn't do with a flip chart pen and a post-it note. Ooh. So, he, yeah, he most certainly would have brought this all together. And so he was known for that ability to bring definitions to the fore, getting real clarity. And as I say, bringing the philosophy down from the heavens, he went beyond just people sitting there stroking their chins, but he would engage in dialogue and conversation about that you know, wherever he could, not just in the forum, but in the marketplace, behind the bike sheds, uh, wherever <laughs> it was, by the stables. You go and talk to anyone because he was genuinely curious about bringing people's ideas or their opinions, perspectives into view and highlighting those. And I loved how he thought, you know, conversation was a way to bring philosophy to life with everyone, not just in your head, because we have great Thinking, internalized thinking is great, but an idea comes to life when it's shared. John, look, we always like to distill a little bit of this into what can we learn, what can we apply, what can we bring into our own lives, our teams, our organizations, what we do in a day to day. What are some of those key lessons? And we've probably covered a few of them already. What are some of those key lessons we can learn from 
Mr. Socrates. <laughs> I love the fact we might get about 15 pronunciations by the end of this as well. Particularly me, I think, you know, just I've got a little glass of wine on the side here. Now, just a little note for those of you who are listening but can't see it. John started off with a white wine and is now has a red wine. So I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, once you start to mix drinks, we know where it goes. If you, if you, <laughs> if you come in with a sparkling and then a beer, watch out. So there is lots to learn. But if I was going to start to think about how could you use this in the context of teams in organizations, I think the first off would be to recognize that idea of Socratic questioning. And that's still something that's very prevalent in the education system. You know, the Socratic method of teaching was about engaging students in dialogue. It was about asking questions that had them think and connect to the material that was being presented. And I think the same here. You can ask Socratic questions within the team, but I'd extend that to say, particularly when you're trying to get definitions agreed upon. So the example I gave earlier is, when we say success, what do we mean by success? What does success look like to you? And you would go around the team and sort of make sure that everybody got a chance to offer up their definition of success and then bring that together. So the clarity of definition around things like purpose, success, values, all of those things that we know are really important to team dynamics and team success, we should be asking those questions in that way and not assume that we've all got the same picture of success in our heads. So that would be number one. And as we had uh, Mike Parsons said just a couple of episodes ago, we all have a picture in our head of what someone is talking about, but it's all a different picture. So we need to get those pictures aligned. And again, make sure we're on the same page. But once we see what that picture is, we go, ah, I actually see what you mean by success. And it's also, you might have some of those, we call them maybe the, the conference cliches, teamwork, communication, like what, yeah, they're big words, aren't they? Yeah. So what does is, what is improved communication yeah. actually look like? Because for someone, it might be you're going to say hello to me in the morning and not be on your phone when I wander into the office. Or someone might be, you're actually going to allow me to speak on Zoom meeting instead of, you know, dominating. So as you were saying that, Simon, of course, that's one of the things very early on in any team team sessions is where you try to establish ground rules. Yeah. You know, you'll say, look, how are we going to be? How are we going to work together in this session? And they'll say things like, oh, well, we need to be honest and communicate well. And you go, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what does it mean? And I think that's right. That. Socratic questioning, again, we might be putting a fancy term on just asking decent questions that probe a little, but yeah, make sure there's no misunderstanding and no missed understanding, which I know we've talked to before. So that'd be point number one. I really like this idea of self-awareness and I was struck by a team I worked with recently and they've been together for 18 months on a leadership program. And it spent a couple of weeks out in the Kimberley in Australia in a desert with traditional landowners and like it's a very fantastic program. And they would just walk in the desert every day or walk, not in the desert, but in the, in the outback or along trails and waterfalls and all types of things. But through this time they'd spent together and talking every day in a traditional way, literally around the campfire with traditional owners, the level of self-awareness these people had I don't think I've ever, ever, ever seen a team operate within this way in such a positive way. I was gobsmacked how 
I know when, you know, this happens, I might react in this way. And I'm really delighted that you're able to share that with me. And yeah, so that ability of self-awareness enabled them to operate at Mm. such a higher level than I've I've seen before. So I think that a little bit of self-awareness and that ability to to share that, you know, your strengths, weaknesses, all of that type of stuff and speak a little bit of humility around it, I think is that really, a really nice, very powerful thing to achieve in, you know, even in a family or any group of friends, but for a, an organisation or teams, yeah, really strong. So, yeah, we can't chisel that all into a piece of stone. So we'll just go with know thyself. <laughs> and in summary, know thyself. No, I, uh, <laughs> Thanks, Simon. <laughs> know thyself. No, that's it. You'd have been, God, imagine that. What's your quote, Simon? Oh, God, off he goes. <laughs> um, no, no, I. but joking aside, I think know thyself and share it with others. Yes. I think is a good idea. I do think that's point number two. Know thyself and share it with others. And I think you're right, that is then... There's a degree of being vulnerable, but we know that builds trust. But to know what strengths you have and bring to the team and to know where you get in the way of the team's success and sharing that, absolutely. So, yeah, Socrates, <laughs> another one in the hoop. All right. Now, just using this this rule of three, because we think we remember things in uh, groups of three, what's maybe one third key thing we can remember from Mr. Socks? Socks. <laughs> with Socrates, well, well the, the serious one, would be humility. Yeah. You know, that all I know is I know nothing, I think is a guiding light for people to go in and go, actually, do you know what? I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how they see things. Maybe they've got a bit of information I don't know. So I go in with a mindset of curiosity and a, and a desire to learn. So that would be point number three, I think. Humility. The funny one would be, don't be a pain in the ass. Yeah, or your team will... <laughs> No, know when your team's about to kill you. Would you like a specially prepared cappuccino? We've been working <laughs> for me. It looks a bit green. Oh, that's a that's a matcha tea. It's a it's a nice one. You'll love it. I it's a hemlockuccino. <laughs> I can't feel my legs. Don't worry. That's normal. <laughs> John, I'm really enjoying this little dive into the world of Mr. The Big Sock. So (laughs) I'll try and think of as many names as I can. Some good, some bad. Note to self. Now we are moving into another philosopher and let's call him, the world might know him as Plato. We'll call him Plato. Plato. (laughs) The Plate Man. (laughs) Tell us, the Plate Man. What's happening? Okay. Who is he? Blake Why is man. he important? <laughs> Why should we listen to him? What's that <laughs> cave all about that he keeps talking about? We'll come to the allegory of the cave in a moment. But yes, Plato, for the pedants among you, 427 to 347 BC. Okay. Just so you know. That's uh, There you go. So everybody <laughs> goes, is that before so crates or after? <laughs> You can read my mind. <laughs> I can't. I can't do the BC stuff. Anyway, so <laughs> we know it's after Socrates because he was a student of Socrates, and I suppose the, the sort of the kind of things we might know of Plato or Plato is that, as well as being a student of Socrates, he recorded, he captured in writing because Socrates didn't 
He didn't believe in capturing any of his thoughts, his <laughs> philosophies, his treaties, his theses, anything. He just couldn't be asked, frankly. I think just kept talking. <laughs> seemed to get pissed. He just kept talking. Seemed to get pissed quite a bit. Oh, anyway, okay. so yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He could just drink people under the table. They could never work it out. So, and, so just sorry, just jump here. I'm sort of getting a picture of why he was uh, in the end. Ooh, a little bit of hemlock. He's like rowdy in the square, oh, going on and on, you know, just talking so much, asking questions, probably getting very boisterous as the night or the day went on. I'm not sure when he started drinking. I'm getting a picture. Smart, but smart, but a little bit, a little rowdy. Bit rogue. <laughs> sort of out there, yeah. You would cross the street if you saw him coming towards you. <laughs> Either because he was staggering or you just thought, oh no, he's gonna ask me something. <laughs> he's gonna ask me something. Anyway, so Plato was his student and Plato no, let's call him Plato. Let's okay, call, Plato, uh, yeah, fair call. <laughs> so Plato, lovely fella. He captured a lot of Socrates' work in what was called the dialogues. So because, along with a couple of other students or prodigies like uh, Astrophenus and Xenophos or whatever, they, they captured his thoughts, Socrates' thoughts. And But Plato most notably captured it in the dialogues. And it was this idea of he presented Socrates' philosophies as a series of dialogues where people are engaging in a conversation. And that's how he, he wrote it, almost like a little conversation, a story. And so that's how we got to know Socrates' philosophies. And that's how they came down to us. And then Plato, in turn, he set up his own school of philosophy and it was known as the Academy. Yep. And so we have academics, scholarly types known as academics. That came from the Academy. And I suppose then from that, as well as sort of building on Socrates, but actually he overturned some of Socrates' thoughts and ideas. And of course, that's the way philosophy works, much the same as science. He did come back to his work time and again. He published his own stuff, The Republic, which is all about how should government work, how should society work, what's the best way to rule. And he was probably most known for his allegory of the cave in terms of big ideas, as well as Republic, allegory of the cave. And I thought we'd explore that for a moment because there's some nice stuff in there, as well as a nice story about a cave. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, something useful out of it. Now, define allegory, just to make sure we're on the, the same page. So I've got a, I've got a 70 80%. You know when your kids come home from school with a, a new English <laughs> term and you go, ooh, metaphor, simile, he is like a fox or he is a fox. A you can't, assonance? <laughs> you can't yeah. quite remember it, so... Allegory, I just want to make sure we've... It's a story, correct? Or is it a... It a is a story. story. It's a story that presents some... Yeah, it, I do see where allegory, metaphor, uh, those kind of collide into a, okay. a little. But it is the idea of a story, yeah, that is meant to highlight a particular theme or an idea that might be explored. Uh, so the allegory of the cave, if I quickly try to recall this. Yeah, please do. Can. Please do. I love stories. <clears throat> so the story of this is it's imagining that you have a cave. Yep. There we I've go. got my eyes First closed. Story. Yeah, I've got my eyes closed. Got your eyes closed. closed. That's yeah. it. And there's a set of prisoners all in the cave uh, shackled. And they're all facing the wall in front of them. And as they're sat there gazing at the wall, there's a fire behind them at the back of the cave, actually towards the entrance of the cave, going out into the world. And the fire 
illuminates the actions of people in front of that fire and they might be walking past with they might be just walking past but they might be carrying objects they might be carrying a, a cup or they might be carrying some wood or something for a fire or whatever it is but they were going about their life and all of this would be presented to the prisoners as just a series of shadows on the wall and so their reality as they perceived it was what they saw in these shadows in the wall. And they would sit there and they would say, ah, oh, that's a that's a dog and that's a man carrying a bundle of twigs and that's somebody carrying a cup and they're drinking. So they would see these shadows on the wall and for them that would be their reality. These shadows dancing around, they would say, okay, well, that's that's how the world is. And so, of course, what happens then is that one of the prisoners escapes. I don't know how. I don't know if he's released. God, God, no, maybe it's a good behaviour or something. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm closing brain. my eyes again now to see the escape. <laughs> Close your eyes. Anyway, so this prisoner, he's off. Yeah. And off he goes. He goes out the cave, past the fire, up, up, up through the entrance of the cave, out into the world, as it were, up onto the road outside the cave. Yeah. And there he sees, he sees the world. He sees trees. He sees people. He sees life he sees it illuminated by the sun and the sun creates shadows on the floor and at first he's blinded by everything and all he can see is shadows on the floor but they're different to what he saw before and ultimately he adjusts to that brightness and how things have been illuminated and he sees the world for what it is and he could stay out but he goes back and so it's the idea that then he goes back to the prisoners in the cave and says look forget these shadows this is not reality I've seen reality. Here's there's a truth out here. Let me let me show you. Let me explain it to you. And of course, he can't. And they all get quite angry and they sort of reject him and they reject his ideas and they say, No, we we're here. We're going to stay here. This is reality. And we don't believe you. And they I think they might kill him as well. It's a bit like <laughs> it's a bit like Socrates again. Basically, it doesn't end well for philosophers. Maybe we should change podcast. Somebody's gonna <laughs> So essentially, we've been saying we want an occupational philosopher in every organisation. Fair chance of work, health, and safety problems. Fair chance you'll, you'll yeah. so. But of course, there's there's lots to explore in that, isn't there? It's you know who are the prisoners? Well, you know the general thought would be well, we're all kind of like prisoners in a cave. We're we're seeing shadows on the wall, and we we think that's reality. And of course, we might be seeing different shadows and might be in different caves, but the philosopher is the is the person who's able to leave the cave and see the world for what it is. So that's the big idea. And again, it's to say, well, how might we use that allegory and bring it into organisational life? What do we mean there? What could we mean? Another way to look at this, and again, sort of being a bit meta, referencing one of my things I talk about a lot, is need to take off our blinkers. Like imagine, you know, a horse wears those blinkers, and I've got my hands over my eyes here. <laughs> yes, that's very good. I can see that. <laughs> but it does, doesn't work for radio or podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> but imagine a horse, you see, a, I mean, you don't see it that often anymore, but you would see a horse going down the street and it's got those blinkers on so it is not distracted by the things happening around. This is great if you're on a very functional task and you will turn off other things to achieve that task. But imagine as we go through life, we create this set of blinkers for ourselves because of the, our background, our upbringing, the way we look at the world. We have a certain way of viewing what's going on. So I always encourage 
every team at the start of any work I do with them or myself, take off your blinkers. So you just open to taking in new information. Step outside of the metaphorical cave and see what life is like elsewhere, which is another really thing for be curious, John, a theme which we come mm. back to time and time again. And again, the, the, just referencing some work done recently, if you want to solve problems, go spend some time outside the cave with the people you're trying to solve those problems for. Like immerse yourself in that world. Don't solve it from your boardroom thinking you know. Hold that thought because when Ooh. we come to Aris, Aris totally knew it all. <laughs> Aris total. We will come back to that thought. But coming back to, to the cave thing, you're absolutely right. As teams, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from that cave allegory? Well, yeah, very simply, take the blinkers off. Recognize you're in a cave. Almost fundamentally, just say, look, we are in a cave. We're looking at shadows. What we've got to realize is what shadows are we looking at? Which of these actually is a fairly good representation of reality? And what is something actually that isn't real? And that is then beliefs and assumptions. And what you see time and again, organizations, teams, everything, whereby uh, beliefs and assumptions take root, myths take root. Yeah. And they are the shadows. They're the shadows dancing on the wall. And so it's to go, okay, can we get through and bust some of these myths? And that's what you do. As a philosopher, you go out and say, okay, let's have a look at the let's have a look at the real world, put the shadows to one side. What's the myths and assumptions that are potentially holding us back? Yeah, I like. I mean, it's, it's quite deep. This isn't. It's meant to be a humorous episode, mm. I thought. But we've 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 gone we've gone off. <laughs> well, we've, we're off piece down another mountain, maybe. <laughs> I've got I've got a dad joke book here. If you want me to lighten the mood for a minute, I don't mind. Just quickly, I used to run a date, yeah, yeah. yeah, go on. Then. I used to run a dating agency for chickens, but I was struggling to make hens meet. <laughs> there you go. There, there you we go. go. We can make it funny. <laughs> funny guy. Look, everyone we've looked at, everyone we speak to, they've got some great quotes. So tell us a little bit about, there's one I think is from Plato, but I might test it with you. But what about yeah. some of the, the great things which have come out of Plato's mouth? Well, the core one that would often be sat with Plato on a, on a poster on a wall would be philosophy begins in wonder. And I, I love that, the way he brings wonder in to replace curiosity because one does something slightly different. There's yeah. a, that is a kind of almost eye-opening or <laughs> wide-eyed curiosity that we would associate with wonder. So I love that, and that's at the very heart of things, much as know thyself and the unexamined life is not worth living from Socrates. And I think <laughs> <laughs> core to everything. And I think this notion of wonder, this might be my interpretation. Well, that's why we're sharing it. But when you approach something with wonder, it's almost a sense of joy as well. Everything on the process with wonder. So it's curiosity. Wonder is almost like curiosity plus a little bit of joy, maybe. So I'm going to approach the day with wonder and, John, and. You know, we spoke recently around <laughs> Salvador Dali saying, uh, yeah. each and every day I wake up and I say to myself, <laughs> what amazing things will this Salvador Dali achieve today? I've been doing this in the mornings. 
<laughs> I know a little. Working out for a, you. Well, I, I lie in bed. And I ask, "What amazing things will I achieve today?" And what it makes me think, I need to look at the day a little bit more. Wonder because often you think, "Oh, I've got these ten things." Blah blah blah. blah. So I've got these ten. So I try. I actually try to rephrase it. What art will I create today? So I'm trying to think if I'm doing a proposal. Boring. <laughs> So I think, no, actually just think, bring that same creativity you bring to your art, to that proposal. So like a little bit of, what's a little bit of wonder you might bring into that? <laughs> I'm just I'm just trying to picture the scene where you're saying, what shall Simon Banks do today? And Sally next to you goes, you're going to pick up the kids, make them lunch, <laughs> clean the backyard <laughs> and empty the swimming pool. Get on with it. And she's also saying, stop speaking out loud at 6 a.m. Yeah, well, that's that's the other one as well. I hope to God you're you're saying this within your inner voice. You'll say this out loud. I'm surprised she hasn't lamped you. <laughs> but, you know, we always talk around micro-experiments. I've been trying that as a micro-experiment. I forgot this morning because I had to get very early for the <laughs> show. But I always think, what amazing things. Right? And, look, does it work? I don't know. But I'm actually thinking, is it a nice way to lie in bed and rephrase the day as in a sense of wonder rather than a sense of, a sense of oh, God, I've got so much shit to do today or, you know, list ticking off or whatever that may be. Now, I know we're meant to sort of riff on this stuff. But, yes, joking aside for one moment, I think that's quite nice because you're right. For the most part, we wake up and go, I've got this to do and this to do and I've got to get that. And you start to order things, all that. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We don't actually go... I'm really looking forward to this. I can't wait to do my run. I've got that planned in for later, a drink with Leslie or whatever it is. You know, th There will be things that you can approach with wonder and joy, not just try to tick off in your mind all the things you've got to do, which maybe <laughs> don't feel as joyous, <laughs> but have to be done. You know, it's just life, isn't it? Now, anyway, I've, there we go. I've got another quote. I'm not sure. I've read it's attributed to Plato, but we'll see. Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put that in a fruit salad. <laughs> That's definitely Plato. <laughs> <laughs> and I, w I want to get that on a T-shirt as well. <laughs> Now, John, for our final philosopher today and doing things in groups of three because it's a little bit of a theme for us today. And also, as I said, we remember things in three. So my keynote coach has told me, always finish with three key points at the end. So thinking in three, our last philosopher today, Aris totally knew everything. What's the big <laughs> vibe, the big energy, the big piece, the universal shift that this great man brought to us? Well, Aristotle, Aristotle knew everything, yes, because he's probably recognised as the most influential of the subsequent thousand years of philosophical thought. And the reason is he was the, I suppose, ultimate polymath. We talked about polymaths before, haven't we, in the realms of artists and how they you know, Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, they, they could sculpt, they could invent helicopters, they could uh, paint and all these things. And Aristotle just had something to say on everything. So Aristotle totally knew everything, I think is definitely his name. 
he was obviously then a pupil of Plato's. And so he studied at the academy. Yep. He then was uh, known to then go on and become the tutor to Alexander the Great, I think was obviously one of his most notable kind of engagements, as it were, as a philosopher, a philosopher teacher to Alexander the Great. And and then he, he just went, yeah, I'm done with this, Plato. I'm going to set up my own school. And so he set up the Lyceum. So he quit the academy and went, yeah, I could do better. Uh, he did cosmology, literature, poetry, politics. Did I say politics? Uh, logic and even zoology. So, I mean, the span of what he did was just quite incredible. My gosh, this person's explored and explained everything in the world and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know, what, Stephen Hawkins of his day? Yeah, that's I mean, what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean... I'm, I'm sort of getting at, yeah, he was just known. Stephen for- Hawkins married with David Attenborough, with Brian Cox. I mean, yeah, he'd be the, I mean, geez, imagine his Instagram account. <laughs> he'd have billions of followers, wouldn't he? Oh, what's that? What's Harris totally knows it all said this week. And I love one of his quotes, which I think we hear so often, is we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Yeah, and I think this is one of the key learns. You know, we've we've said through Socrates and Plato. You know, what can we learn? What can we genuinely apply in the teams and organisations we're in? And I am absolutely convinced that habits are everything. As individuals, we can form routines and habits that lead to a certain success or outcome we're looking for. And absolutely, we can do that as teams. So I do like the idea sometimes where you step away from the idea of goals that you might yeah. have as a team. And just say, look, what are the habits we're going to put in place? What are the things we're going to repeatedly do that might lead us to some idea of a goal or a direction of travel we're moving in? But yeah, habits and how they can be baked in, I think is really critical. So that's that's number one from Aristotle. Yeah, yeah and I like this. What, yep, also, one of those creative habits, because that's how, what we talk about. Like, If you're going to be curious... You're going to be curious as a team. If you're going to see things other people miss, if you're going to bring that spirit of that creative mindset and creative behaviour into your team, what are things you will do, those habits, only small, that will set you apart from mm. other teams and actually make you that they're, you're the team that people look to and they go, oh, not sure what's going on over there, but I like it. If I need a bit of spark, that's the team I want to be involved mm. with. That's the team I want to join. And that then bleeds out into an organisation as well because you're setting those standards and those habits. But particularly, I always think we, I think it's good to look through that lens of what are we going to do which will build that creative muscle in our team? What will we do which will be, and we know it'll be a little bit different, but that's okay. What are we going to try? What are we going to experiment with? And I really like this idea of we talk about what are some little micro experiments we can run just so we can start to test and try things, which is from the world of philosophy. I don't know everything, and I come at it with a sense of humility. And so the simplest things would be teams coming back, you know, for their meetings or whatever and say, okay, so what have you been experimenting with this week? How did it go? What would you do differently? What are you going to do next? And that's it. And that would be an agenda item. You know, I know it's so simple and almost almost too tangible you go just put it in the agenda you know if you bake that into the agenda well there you go there's a it's a nudge in effect yes and so that becomes the thing as well as you create the environment where the default the nudge 
takes you to do that stuff and it just becomes automatic. The other one is be a polymath. Be interested. Be interested in everything, not just your department. What are the other teams doing? What do they do? What are they? What results are they looking for? How does what you do impact them? Just be interested. It's, this is you know, Aristotle learning. Don't be in a silo. You always see people who have a lot of friends. I think they say hello to a lot of people. And I've got my the town I live in, which you've been to, a lot of people on foot. So you see, I see some people, they know everyone, but they actually make the effort to talk to everyone. And I always go, man, like you can't, if you're walking with them, you can't literally walk 100 metres, take about <laughs> 15 minutes. Another way to think of it is the letter T. So the capital T, you've got the piece along the top is shorter. You've got the, the stem. I don't know if that's the excuse, uh, <laughs> excuse any calligraphers <laughs> if I've got that wrong, but the stem of the T. So you, you've uh-huh. got your deep knowledge in your certain area, but then you, you sit across a lot of areas as well, which mm. is the T at the yeah. top. So you're a specialist, but you're very curious to know what's going on in other parts of the organisation or just the world in particular, like reading new things. John, let's have a little thought experiment. And look, this caught my eye, this question, and I don't know where to attribute it to, but somewhere out and about over the last week, week and a half. And I think it was from a question they would ask in schools. I think if I got this context right, just to get people thinking literally in the idea of it's a thought experiment. And I thought, oh, wow, other, other people are doing this. So the question is, would you rather win... $40 million in the lotto or win the lotto, but a big sizable amount or live twice as long. Oh, oh, so, so money to make my normal lifespan maybe more comfortable or whatever. Yeah. Well, be uncomfortable. Like you, you be, want, be, like, you want like, a load of money. Just, so yeah. Yeah. So, you can uh, yeah, do, right. do whatever you want. Let's so I could that. get, yeah, so I'd be able to get myself a tumble dryer for the kitchen yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, but <laughs> more, the, get the, more than get, that. Get the back room painted. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> Might have fixed a squeaky wheel yeah. on the bike as well. Wow. So, the, well, that's, that is very tempting. Or double my lifespan. Mm. Yeah. But that would be with my normal. I'd just have to work longer, wouldn't I? I'd retire well, at the age of... 130. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Let's imagine that you, let's say you live twice as long. So let's say 40 becomes 80. You know, like might, yeah. might feel happy when you're 40, you're 80. Yeah. But, but still, still, if I've got twice the lifespan, let's imagine I'm, let's say 75. So I'm going to live to 150. I mean, how's the pension work with that? Like, <laughs> the pension plan. <laughs> That's just a nightmare. They'll be going, oh, you need to start saving at the age of two <laughs> to fund your retirement. No, I don't know. I think I'd say I just win the lotto. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I, I was thinking you live <laughs> twice as long, but now you, you went on with the pension plan. I thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Might run out of cash like at, you know, exactly. 90. <laughs> 60 years living under a bridge. 
But let's say, let's say, put it in your you're funded. Your your retirement is funded. Okay. Maybe not to to millions, but let's say you're you're comfortable. You, you, you're comfortable. If yeah. I was comfortable, then oh, I I'd want to stick around. I want to see what happens. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, part of me just thinks you know just win the lotto and just blast out. Maybe. But- <laughs> <laughs> And as you said before, rip the shit out of it. Oh no, rip, no, not rip the shit. Rip the ass out of it, wasn't it? What was it? What's your quote? Rip the ass out of it. What's the, what's the quote on your desk? You said have a go. A at, have a go. At, <laughs> have a go at life. Rip the shit out of it. That's enough. Rip the ass out of it. <laughs> I thought that's what you'd say. Well, I've got a would you rather. <laughs> I could do would you rather. <laughs> oh, dear. Maybe we better stop. Um, <laughs> no, do yours. Do just, yours. Oh, I do mine. Would you rather <laughs> do a mini cheer whenever? Someone... <laughs> right. Let's no, start. Do it. Start do, it. Right. do it. Do it. Would you rather <laughs> do a mini cheer? Whenever someone compliments you, or plug your ears and mutter, "I'm not listening. I'm not listening." Whenever someone criticizes you, <laughs> and you have to do this at work. <laughs> so this is for yeah. your deep opposition. Is- no matter where you are in a meeting, wherever you are yeah. at work, for yeah. the next month. <laughs> so if someone says. Hey Simon, that was a great project last week. You have to go woohoo like that. Yeah? Yeah. I go, Simon, I've got some feedback for you. The client wasn't happy when you did XYZ and you'd have to be not listening, not listening. <laughs> and, but, and I couldn't do anything about it. I just have to observe such behavior. Yeah. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. I, I would go- do that anyway. Yeah, I would go with the yeah, it's pretty much normal behaviour. I'd go with the cheer. I think I could get away with that a little bit more. I think yeah. just go, yeah, energetic cat. Yeah. Yeah. A little yeah. bit over the top, so but you know, we could we can roll with that. <laughs> As opposed to now, on that last piece you did for us, you know, did, uh, you know let's share some thoughts. Not listening. John, I've really enjoyed learning a little bit more, diving into this world of philosophers and, uh, you know, some of those key insights for life, for work, and all the things which uh, happen in between. But if we were to, as I often might say when I'm speaking, if you listen to nothing else so far, and look, there's a fair chance of that audience (laughs) and a little bit of a laugh, (laughs) what's the the one key thing you'd like to maybe finish on or wrap up with? I am going to zone in on the idea of humility. And so I think increasingly so, I just see that idea of, yes, be curious, but curiosity goes hand in hand with humility. And and in some cases leads curiosity. I think if you're humble about your the limits of your understanding and your knowledge, then you're going to be curious and you're going to sort of seek to expand that because you start from a place of going, I don't know everything. So humility for me. How about you? Yeah, building on that, I really like this idea of comes from Socrates. You know, conversation was a way to bring philosophy to life, not abstract internalized thought. Now, 
don't get me wrong, there's, uh, the ability to think is, is a beautiful thing, but the ability to engage in conversation is when we share ideas and share thoughts, they can grow. And I think there's the art of a curious conversation. So don't come in with, you know, uh, two sides and, you know, I'm going to stick to my side and you stick to yours. Obviously, there's, you know, sometimes where you, you do stick up for what is right. So I'm not saying abandon that, but just come in with a, a curious mindset into a conversation so that conversation can go further. And we're not communication experts here, but there's there's something there in the way I'll approach this from a space of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, Socrates, yes, it was about dialogue. And dialogue is exchange and two-way uh, conversation, an exchange of ideas, perspectives, etc. not just statements of positions, one to the other, which can be where you see conflict emerge, but rather that someone can put something forward as a premise and you can explore it and be curious and say, well, tell me more about that element of what you've just put forward. And I want to know more. And I don't understand that bit. And how would that work? And, and so you don't just put your position back. You explore the other person's premise and position and ideas rather than just come back at it. There's genuine dialogue. That's the message. Yeah. And the, I often say the innovation sweet spot is between two wildly opposing opinions and ideas. So somewhere in the middle, there's there's something there because you've both got a high level of intelligence, but there's something in the middle when those two things uh, mash up together. There's a Venn diagram there somewhere, Simon. Love a Venn diagram. Hey, John, that brings us to the end of our show. Yes, I did really enjoy that. I enjoyed exploring philosophers and sharing the limits of my understanding. <laughs> with humility, <laughs> of course. With humility. with humility, yes. I'm very humble. I'm curious, but I'm humble. So we'd love you to check us out on our website. Connect with us, most importantly. So the socials on the website, get in touch with us. Um, it's great to get correspondence. It's great to get ideas from people, that uh, things they'd like us to explore. Yeah, just let us know how, what you think of the show. You can rate us. That's always good. Tell your friends, obviously. And Simon, anything else that I've missed? Well, firstly, occupationalphilosophers.com is our website. We can find out a little bit more about John and myself and some of those other things and also see all the episodes we've done previously. And look, I'm going to say something a little bit about myself. I put together a new showreel, which is in the sense of this is Simon on stage doing what he does. I'm going to put a link to the show notes. I've just put up on my YouTube channel and you know, I need to bump up my hits a little bit. So, <laughs> so <laughs> click it out there. Don't say anything horrible, just nice things. Yes. <laughs> I won't heckle you digitally. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's us. Should we wrap up? And in the meantime, Simon, what should we do? As always, stay curious, make stuff, have fun, play more. And we now add can I, date. Can I say? Life. Yeah. Oh, you go. You go. You go. Date life. And oh, <laughs> with all the enthusiasm of a wet flannel. <laughs> What's so in your cave page? allegory. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that. Well, I, immediately I thought of you because you paint. So I thought, well, you do some cave paintings. I was just thinking about how to make it comfortable. So I, I started to put rugs and stuff in, making sure people took their shoes off. <laughs> no, I've, I've gone the opposite. I'm thinking like you walk past the cave and you see these like bongos going boom, 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 and everyone's going woohoo. So you've got, you know, you want to be in the cave and like you go in that cave, you come out a, a different person five days later. <laughs>
<laughs> Who needs philosophy?